The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. No my hockey mic the fold called Duncan Grieve Toku Ingwa. my guests guests plural today are Jack Tame, host of QA, and Alex Bray, his executive producer. Uh, longtime fans of the, the spin-off will, will know that Alex Bray worked here for, for some years and was a really beloved member of Afano uh, as as the founding editor of the Bulletin who's current editor I, I had on the podcast last week. So it, it's been a little run. But, um, you know, it, as it always is when you have someone who you're close with leave, that it's kind of a wrenching um, process. But we were also just, as a collective, just so proud of him and that he'd, he'd gone to to that EP role at such a, a storied um, program as, as Q&A. And we're very confident he'd make a, a big success of it. And so it's proved. So what we're talking about today with, with Jack and Alex is is really the the thinking that goes into a show of that nature. And I think there is a, a sense that it is it's a show that's had some really smart people thinking about what it is, how it should be made and and its function in terms of uh, political journalism and, and society more broadly. And, and that's kind of largely what we discuss. I also think that Jack has developed into one of the the very best of, of the interviews this, this country has to offer. And I talk about with him about the preparation and um, the different kind of style he brings to bear there. Uh, and also about, you know, fundamentally... It is a bit odd that our um, one of our best interviewers, on, you know, on a on a reasonably well-funded show with a very important mission, languishes to a certain extent at nine a.m. on a Sunday morning, uh, and and about the the sort of challenges that that represents, and and whether there is post the TVNZ RNZ merger any scope for that kind of work to to return to seven p.m. because. As I noted recently in my Corngate piece, in, in 2005, you had three different shows fronted by Susan Wood, Paul Holmes, and, and John Campbell, all doing these big statement interviews in front of the biggest possible audience at 7 p.m. And right now, much as uh, the likes of Seven Sharp, Shortland Street, and, and the project have important sort of socio-cultural roles to play, there doesn't 
feel like there is any place where a politician will have to deal with the consequences of something that happened that day under those white hot lights, and I miss it. Um, and then also a little bit about the challenges of taking that to to a new digital audience, because fundamentally 7pm just isn't what it was in terms of uh, that sort of younger half of the New Zealand population. It's a, it's a fun chat. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. This is Jack Tame and Alex Bray on The Fold. Morena Korua and uh, welcome to The Fold. Kia ora. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to have you both up here, both just good to see you, you again, Alex, good and, and to you, see Jack. You too. <laughs> um, I feel like the last time we interacted in any profound way was when you were uh, telling your Newstalk ZB audience about me mistaking wasabi for avocado. That was just one of the highlights of my broadcasting <laughs> career. <laughs> just, was, and, and, and seeing you tr- l- desperately looking for a place to spit it out and so, so some ornamental pot plant or something. Right? It was at a really flash TVNZ <laughs> event and um, one of the many sort of humiliations of, of my career as a journalist. I'm just glad that you were there to witness it and then bring it to the nation. Uh, but I want to talk about Q&A. It's not about me. It's about how I feel like there's this thing with uh, with really long running shows that they can have periods where they sort of just drift along, and other periods where they get in motion, and that feels like what Q and A is up. Q and A is up to something at the moment, and you know I think, for example, the the most recent saw you on location at Papakura Marae, and you know that is just not how the a typical kind of national show a show about national politics tends to open. What, what are you what are you doing when you head out into the field like that, and what are you trying to do with Q and A more broadly? Uh, well, thank you. I think we I think we try to hit a few different notes on Q and A. So for a story like that, um, we hold a curious place in the news cycle in that we are always trying to think of two things: like what are the ongoing issues that are going to play out over a kind of medium term in the political cycle. And for something like that, you know, issues such as like co-governance, um, mm-hmm. three waters, you know, there are subjects that you know you are going to return to repeatedly over a year or two. But there are also the stories that are kind of defining the news week. And when we're in this weird space where at the start of the week we have to go, what is going to be the kind of big story at the end of this week? And so we try and I think have a bit of a mix of the kind of medium-term stories that are always there just chipping away and then the more newsy elements. And inevitably, there's crossover between those two things as well. So for something like uh, last weekend, we were looking for a new-ish take on COVID and on the pressures that the health system's under. And of course, you know, and, and I don't mean any disrespect to them, we knew that we could go to the likes of Michael Baker or Susie Wiles or epidemiologists, and we called around some of those epidemiologists to get their take on things. Um, but we just wanted to do something that would be a little bit a little bit different, I suppose. And uh, from, from my perspective, I also, I just like getting out of the studio mm. Um, mm. As, as often as possible. I think Alex likes things in the field as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, the good thing about TV as a medium, and this is something that I'm discovering uh, all the time, is that um, it's a, you know, it sounds trite, but it's real seeing as believing sort of medium. So um, to have someone come into the studio and talk, yep. I'm sure, uh, like, there are lots of interesting things to say on 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 most of those sorts of interviews, but to actually get out and show people stuff in that way, uh, I think it makes it hit home in a way that uh, is much more powerful. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's interesting because it, it felt it felt that way, and and that that when you're then holding a politician to account, for example, the fact that you can both draw on that and your audience will theoretically have seen that, it, it means that a sort of the health system's doing fine. It's different, right? <laughs> uh, well, but in doing that, you've you've made sort of structural changes too in that, uh, you know, the the panel of pundits, the, yeah, the, the sort of yeah. shining light of... I, of I the, should <laughs> probably take this bullet, I think. No, uh, so, that's a, I, I, <laughs> I, I, should, no, no, I, I, I think... Yeah. Well, yeah, so... What so have you done with this, this one of the yeah, most important of, roles? Yeah, there's a, there's a TVNZ basement and all of the pundits are locked up in there. Um, <laughs> no, it's, um, it's, it's a decision I made um, kind of over the course of last year where... Uh, so when I when I started in the job, uh, two days later, uh, the Delta lockdown happened, and so there were a couple of factors that made doing panels really, you know, not particularly useful in, in a way because you'd have to do everything over Zoom or maybe at a pinch send a camera out to someone. Uh, so that that made it look. Shabby. Shabby. Yeah, less good, less good. Um, and there was also the the fundamental fact of, you know, when you're in a sort of emergency situation like that, there's not necessarily an awful lot that a pundit or a panellist can offer uh, that will be insightful or new or move stories forward. And then after a while of doing that, um, I kind of realised that, and I, I'm at odds with some of our uh, audience who send this feedback in, but I kind of realised that I didn't actually necessarily miss uh, having those panellists because if you want uh, if you want the views of pundits and analysts, uh, and there's a lot of value in that, but you can kind of go a lot of places to get it. And we were in this position with Q&A where we... Uh, publicly funded to make journalism. So we should be doing primary source journalism, in my view. And, you know, and pundits are very useful, but they are a secondary source of information, as it were. So we we felt that, you know, because of that, we should be going directly to people who can have an impact on, on the news firsthand. You haven't killed it forever necessarily. No, though, right? no like absolutely If there's an appropriate not. moment or an appropriate subject and maybe in an election year it will be slightly different. It'll be kind of like the woolly mammoth in the ice, you know, mm. in the tundra where we pull out a couple of hairs and try and, yeah. and, and, and rekindle yeah. it. But I think, yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was a really good call. Well, I think as well we, we would still do a panel at times when uh, – when the panel is the best way of telling that particular story. So uh, we we had uh, a panel around the start of this year with um, Emmeline Pickering-Martin and Fran O'Sullivan to give a couple of different perspectives on the what was at that stage the very new cost of living crisis. We had uh, Bernard Hickey and Rebecca Stevenson on to talk about different angles on the crash in Bitcoin and, and the crash in stock markets. So, I mean, sometimes it is actually the case that uh, getting journalists or analysts or pundits or something on a panel is a good way of telling the story. But, but by and large, I feel that if you're, if you, you know, funded to make journalism, then you should be going out and doing that primary source stuff. 
It's maybe a, a future solution is, you know, with Love Island, you have you have the show and then you have After Sun. <laughs> yes. And uh, yes. P- potentially like some yeah. kind of Q&A. Q&A After Dark, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, just a yeah. suggestion. I'm not, not trying to step on your toes. It's on that front, you know, like you're now basically a year into having... Uh, le- left, left, left your beloved bulletin. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Still read it. Taking, uh, I should hope so. Taking yeah. this bold and brave step. How, how are you? How are you handling it, Alex? Um. You could still fill uh, a book with all of the things I don't know about making TV. Uh, it's it, it's a really it's a really big learning curve going to a different medium like that. It's not uh, you know there are some things which transfer over like you know, understanding the news cycle, editorial judgment. Uh, I mean, that, you know, having having that from one job means that going to another job is possible. But uh, in terms of a medium, there's still heaps and heaps that I'm, I'm coming to learn about it all the time. And um, I'm quite lucky, I think, in that in the team that we've got, uh, we have a lot of people who really understand TV as a medium. And... Um, and have those skills, which I really don't. So uh, when it comes to the TV side of it, I'm still relying incredibly heavily on everyone else in the team, basically. But yeah, I mean, overall. Do you even have a TV? Yeah, I do. Oh, I do okay. now. I do now. I didn't when I started, but I thought, that's you know, what this you want. is a... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's what you want to produce it. Yeah. <laughs> Throw away the remote. It's just one channel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So, so Jack, obviously... Um, Recruiting is something that TVNZ is famously good at, especially in the the news division lately. Um, what what made you think that that Alex could just come out of this real specific job of the bulletin and jump into? And I must say, I, I do think, much to my chagrin, um, he has absolutely crushed it for, for in terms mm. of the sense of of what an, an EP's influence is. But what, why did you sort of think this dude? Um, I think. Well, first of all, it wasn't. Solely my decision. <laughs> it's my it was all conducted no. over squash. Well, there was there was a little bit of uh, there was were some squash politics that that were at play. Now I think we played squash uh, a few months earlier, and and, and we and we kind of hit it off then. Um, yeah, we we actually haven't played squash since who won? I've started doing yeah. this job. I think yeah. it was pretty even. Yeah, was it? Yeah, pretty um, even. And, <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty even. Yeah, and we, yeah. I think. We, we spoke on the phone once for m- maybe 90 minutes after you'd applied for the job. And um, and we kind of, I think we clicked over the things that we found interesting and in that they were the sorts of things that most people were completely bored by. But we mm. actually thought, oh, maybe, maybe we can, you know, maybe there's something we're kind of on the same frequency here. I remember Alex was like, oh. And this was, you know, this was 18 months ago. He's like, oh, you know, the thing that's just fascinating me at the moment, supply chain. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, man. And he's like, yeah, you know, if you look at like global shipping costs, and I was like, oh, yeah, you got to see the latest numbers out of Rotterdam. They're really bad. And we were like, that's big brain energy <laughs> right there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, there probably aren't that many people who are interested in, the, in, in these kinds of issues, but are interested in finding ways to explore these issues. Um, you know, you know, in a in a in a format where we're not driven by kind of commercial <laughs> imperatives in the same way that other shows were. So we spoke on the phone a bit, and we definitely hit it off. And I think um, we were attracted to exploring the same kinds of subjects, but also when it comes to interviews and things, we have a we have. Um, we have a we have a similar approach, and we also, for all the things we have in common, we have 
things uh, that differ that really benefit each other. So, for example, Alex is 100% right. He knows nothing about television. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I know plenty about television because I've basically grown up with it. Mm. Um, And I don't mean that to be critical. But it was wonderful because he could come in with a completely fresh perspective and go, well, hang on, why do you do that bit standing up? And then I go, oh, shit, actually, good question. I don't know why we do it. We've just always done it like that. We don't need to do it like that. Let's, let's change things. Now, I remember that, um, you know, Alex is just fascinated by local body politics and I'm really interested in foreign affairs. And so there are kind of some, <laughs> there are some nice little, um, you know, subjects where we offset each other, where, where his interests and my interests kind of meet in the middle and we can, and we can combine our strengths. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm so I'm just so glad he came on. It's it's so good, and like we're able to kind of sit in our corner of the newsroom, and we di- I think we disagree fairly regularly. Oh yeah, I mean I think we sometimes don't argue we necessarily, but we disagree in well, a healthy way. Well, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean I think uh, uh, I've worked with Alex. I know that yeah, disagreement yeah. is part of the role, and that's <laughs> and it is. A, it's a fantastic. Yeah. It's the privilege of the role. Yeah, yeah. and well, it's really yeah, important yeah. to in terms of teasing out how you get to a better news product, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and and I mean I think sometimes as well. Well, we argue or disagree uh, in order to just test ideas, yeah. as it were. And I think that's, um, yeah, yeah, it is. It is something that is uh, in in modern in modern media, the opportunity to uh, to sit around disagreeing with each other in order to uh, to come to the best conclusion is kind of an unimaginable luxury. But you know, we have we have time to do that. And yeah. then and then once we have done that, we then have the resources to do something about it. So, I mean, one of the things that, that comes across, I think, is that, that Jack feels like a very well-prepped interviewer. Like you, you've sort of ascended to that that sort of quite terrifying tier of the like Moana Maniapoto or, or Mihinarangi Forbes or Kim Hill, um, where you can just imagine that if you're a politician, there's a you're, you're, you're trudging in rather than going in with a spring in your step. What, what, what is the process that how, you know? How do the pair of you go into those those big kind of statement interviews and not have them feel like? They're just sort of the interview of the week or them doing the rounds and have them feel like they've got that sort of freshness and and they're going to be mm. probed and, and different angles explored. Mm. Um, I, I don't think Jack is going to take credit here, so I'll say this one in that uh, he does a lot of his prep himself, like a lot, a lot, in a way that is actually really unusual uh, for broadcasters. Like, And I think that, that comes from the sense of ultimately um, when – you know, when the interview is happening, he has to be in the moment and have everything at his, uh, you know, at his fingertips. I mean, like me and uh, Siobhan Wilson, who is our one of our producer or sort of our main senior producer. Yeah, What's yeah. the title? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. You're the boss, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know exactly. Um, anyway, she's brilliant. She, uh, she does a lot to uh, give you know, the the basis for what the interview should be about. But then Jack takes that and uh, and makes it completely his own and puts it in his own words, puts it in his own way of thinking uh, and is really genuinely uh, across the issues that we're interviewing on. I That is very generous of you. I think it. I think it's probably... But not to want to throw it all on Alex either. Yeah, yeah I, I think I think we do have a collaborative approach. But Alex is so Alex and Siobhan will put in 
all of their kind of ideas and the subject matter that they think we, we should be digesting. But it's true that for a strong interview, the person who's in the chair needs to be over the information. Mm. And if you look at the very best interviewing, it is, I think, when you're not relying on notes, you're not relying on anything else, but you're so comfortable with the subject matter that you can focus 100% on what the interviewee is saying. And it sounds like a really, um, it sounds like a really kind of basic skill, but the thing about live interviewing and particularly live television interviewing is there's this, this, this massive kind of sense of pressure that comes with the moment. And even for the most practiced politician, there is this kind of sense of gravity and, um, you know, you know, you, you can feel like you're on the precipice of disaster really easily because you know that you're just one stuff up away from a YouTube clip or from stuff going viral on Twitter or whatever. And so um, I, I think with that kind of dynamic, it can be hard for some interviewers to actually focus on what the interviewee is saying. And at the times when I have felt like my interviewing is at its strongest, it's when I kind of subconsciously am in a zone where I'm 100% focused on what the person is saying. So I'm not worried about the ad breaks. I'm not worried about where the cameras are going. I'm not worried about the director giving me times in my ear. I'm not worried about notes, nothing else. I'm just 100% focused on what they say. And um, I guess I have this kind of lofty ethos when it comes to interviewing politicians in particular, in that I think our job is and our responsibility is more than just to ask questions, it is to seek answers. And so, um, especially for elected officials, I like to be in a space where I can listen to exactly what they're saying, work out if they're actually answering something, and get in there pretty quickly if they're not, to try and cut the spin and get through to, you know, to, to whatever the purpose of the interview is. Well, yeah, not to, again, not to go too lofty with it, but... Uh when it comes to those interviews, you know, we we actually have a role within the democratic system. To to anyone who's who is seeking or wielding power, we we have a role to uh, to demand answers from them on behalf of the public. And and I think that that is, you know, something that we take pretty seriously. Yeah. And one last point is like, it is a, it is kind of a luxury to be making. Uh, one show a week compared to lots of other. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, if you oh, think about yeah. if you think about all the other live interviewing, right? Like, so so w- whether it's a you know a morning news show or an evening news show, most of them are daily. Um, most of them have three minutes with a politician to have fifteen or twenty and an opportunity to actually read the report rather than just the executive summary is a massive luxury in news. And so I think we really benefit from that. Mm, yeah. Mm. There, there seems, you know, I've been listening, I've been listening to Q&A rather, rather than watching it um, over the past week because you've got a, a podcast feed, which people should check out if they, if 9am on a Sunday doesn't suit them, and we'll <laughs> talk about that in a bit. But um, but there seems to be like, there are some interviews that are kind of notably pointed, like I'm thinking about the Chris Luxon interview when you were doing some quite intense live maths on him. Uh, and and Kamal Sepaloni, uh, you know, around the um, the sort of progress or lack thereof of um, you know disabled peoples under the the Labour government, and then others which had a much more sort of reflective quality. I'm thinking about the second Andrew Costa interview or Louisa Wall's kind of exit interview. Do you 
know going in which path one is going to take or, or is that sort of a function of the responses you get? It, it, I think I know to a certain extent in that I think um, I think I think different subjects and different interviewees require a different approach at different times. So I think uh, like the Christopher Luxon interview, for example, I think we've interviewed him twice as leader. Mm. And the first interview we did was was not nearly as pointed and wasn't nearly, I wasn't interrupting him at all really. And I was basically just, um, it was shortly after he'd taken over. And so I was asking him questions about his kind of relationship with the treaty and, and yeah, his values as opposed to... We really did want to get a sense of his values because at, at the time I think uh, Chris Luxon was still quite an unknown quantity to most uh, to most voters. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so that was very much about... You know, I think still taking that ethos of challenge uh, because he was was seeking power or is seeking power, but also uh, giving him a, a an opportunity to explain his values in a in that sort of setting. Yeah, and and I suppose we ask ourselves, what's gonna, what are we, what approach is going to get the most for the audience? And you know, if you just went in and softballed uh, a leader of the opposition or the prime minister or whoever, or you know, a cabinet, a senior cabinet minister halfway through a term when they have lots of policy to talk to, I don't, just knowing how well practiced and how um, slick most of our senior politicians are at avoiding saying anything, uh, I don't think you get anything for the audience. So so for those kinds of interviews, I mean, for the Christopher Luxon interview, I, I think maybe some people... People always view things through a through a really tribal lens, <laughs> and well, maybe we can yeah. talk about that in a bit. Well, people yeah, who think well. in those terms do. They do. But they I think do. a lot of our audience is not really tribal. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. They're not really tribal political people in that sense, and they, they, you know, you could even say that a lot of them are probably the archetypical swing voter. Right, voter, right. But I mean, you know, but but people who, you know, people who want a, an interview to be a kind of gladiatorial contest only want it to be a gladiatorial contest when their team is winning. And, <laughs> and you know, I think uh, for like the, the Luxon interview, that, that previous one, I just know that he had been kind of pushing these lines and that the whole party had been pushing these lines and there hadn't been a format until that point where someone actually had 15 or 20 minutes to go, hang on, let's actually examine all of these lines and so we did, um, and I suppose yeah, I suppose it's I suppose it's different to like a Costa a Costa interview or something like that. But at the end of the day, it is what is the best approach for getting the the most useful information for our audience. Mm. So one thing, like, like we were talking off air about um, Corngate, which I recently wrote about, and and there were a number of things which which sort of seemed really interesting to me. One of the things that struck me was the extent to which. A young John Campbell uh, resembled you both, both physically and in some respects, in this sort of kind of bizarre Jack way. Team, yeah. A young John Campbell, oh, how about that? But the but, office is going to be unbearable when that gets out. Eh? But more to the point, uh, in terms of that that combination of you know, he was highly prepped for that interview, and I think that that went on to be a you know he was for a period of time the the sort of the emblematic uh, interviewer of a particular era. And you've been around, you know, filled in for, uh, you know, you were in a seat that was once occupied by Paul Holmes, you filled in for Mike Hosking, that you've been sort of there or thereabouts with a lot mm. of the sort of titans of broadcasting. What are the, were the sort of interviewers or, or um, broadcasters that, that really impacted you kind of growing up and even lately? And, you know, here all from, from overseas that have really sort of, you thought, that's the way. Um, well, I still listen to Hard Talk every week. Don't miss it. 
Love it. Um, so Stephen Sacker, you know, I was, I'm, yeah, I'm not afraid to fanboy a little bit over Stephen Sacker. Um, growing up, I did watch Holmes and Campbell a lot and, you know, and really admired them and admired that slot, admired the seven o'clock, you come down, you sit, sit down, you come and you sit down, you, you be interviewed. I have become quite good friends with Guy on Espiner and I'm not just saying this because he is my friend, but I think he has kind of informed my approach to interviewing in that he can see that there's a continuum of approaches. Like you can go in really aggressively and, and pointedly and, you know, really seek information, but sometimes it's more effective to go in with a gentler touch. And I think that he really informs that. He's also someone who 100% believes when it comes to politicians in seeking answers rather than just asking questions. And um, I think that is something that sticks with me. When it comes to radio, uh, which is which is a slightly different medium when it comes to interviewing because it doesn't have quite that same dynamic tension that television does, I honestly think Mike Hosking is an incredible interviewer and doesn't get the credit that he deserves. And I know there'll be people going, oh, my God, that's disgusting. But uh, I just I, I think Hosking's in a, a strata of broadcasting that very few New Zealanders have ever reached and that right now he's absolutely popping and he just has a way to cut to the – um, to the to the core of it of of a dispute or a subject or a policy that um, that that few people have, and of course, um, you know, I like hearing Kim Hill toy with someone <laughs> <laughs> along, along with the best of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that thing that you mentioned before, we've touched on a couple of times about seven pm, um, and and there was a. A brief moment in 2005 when there were a politician could plausibly be interviewed on three different channels by three exceptional interviewers uh, in the primest of prime time during a, a, an era of huge TV audiences. When you first got into Q and A, it had a little dalliance with was it nine pm on a Monday, mm. uh, and, and yet I think I think later I think nine yeah, was it was it that well, maybe nine thirty it was nine it was nine thirty five and then it was nine forty five and then it was ten fifteen because 10:15. well because on a Monday yeah I know because yeah. depending on whether or not they had a BBC drama if they had a BBC drama playing earlier in the night that's, the that's exactly they have to well no they had an hour long because the BBC didn't have ads and so then everything behind it had to shift down so we never had a regular time slot yet. I mean, which which brings us back to, you know, you've got this this program, which I think is humming. It's in this kind of commercial free, you mm. know, it's right next to all the Christian programming. It rates pretty well. Like it's, it's pretty regularly in the top 10 most viewed shows for, uh, for New Zealand on air funded programming. And yet it still feels like in terms of the gap between the quality of the interviews and how important the subject matter is and where the biggest audiences remain, it's just a while away. Is that your fault as executive producer? Yes. Yes, <laughs> fundamentally. <laughs> no, look, I mean, I, I guess I would just say that um, that in, in, a, in a linear TV sense, in a, in a purely linear TV sense, Sunday 9am is not necessarily the time slot that you'd, that you'd pick. But the way that media works now, uh, you know, we're putting all of our interviews out on YouTube and on TVNZ On Demand, and you can listen to the show as a podcast, and you can read articles that come out of the interviews on a lot of websites, not just one news. Other media tend to, you know, each week pick up something from 
the show that they'll turn into a story of their own. And, and yeah, I mean, I think linear TV ratings are, they're obviously important if you're an advertiser. They're, they're important no matter what. You want people watching the show when it's on. But ultimately, I think there are very different ways to measure impact as well. And, and you know, if if something is, is going well on the show itself, it's also going to be going well when you chuck the interview on YouTube later on. Yeah. I, I, I was the one who rallied for it to move back to nine o'clock on Sunday mornings. Um, I probably I shouldn't get in trouble for that. Um, it was before <laughs> your time. Yes. There were a few problems with Monday night. First of all, we didn't have a regular time slot. It always changed. Second of all, terrible time in terms of the news week because you have a post-care press conference on a Monday afternoon. So you prep all week for your for your show and then Jacinda Ardern comes out and makes an announcement at 4.30 that completely changes it and then they refuse to put anyone up. So it wasn't working in terms of the news cycle. We had a, we had a larger audience in the evenings but a way less um, engaged and dedicated audience. And so the thing I like about Sunday mornings is that people – uh, our audience is pretty consistent, and I mean that they are political types. But I would like to think they are they are also people who are you know that that we have CEOs and business leaders and organisation leaders and and you know a, a I, relatively well kind of tuned in. Yeah, audience. I, I think uh, I mean honestly, I uh, with some shows we get bigger numbers than other shows, but uh, I mean on the shows that have bigger numbers, I. You know, I look at that and I think, well, we've actually managed to get through to just a lot of everyday New Zealanders yeah. uh, uh, as well. I mean, and and in a way that, I mean, that's always been quite gratifying when we've done that because I think we've uh, we've sort of we've trusted mm-hmm. in the uh, in terms of the programming that we're doing, we've trusted in the intelligence and understanding that that people have, and and said that, yeah, you know, like this is a this is serious television, uh, but but people respond to that in a, in a way that's quite good and people the, like that. And the other thing about the 7 o'clock slot and everyone who laments that we don't have interviewing at 7 o'clock, I, mean, I would love to see a show like ours at 7 o'clock if there was a strong audience for it. But the reason that we don't have a strong interviewing show at 7 o'clock on either channel, the reason that Campbell Live doesn't exist now, unfortunately, is because, and it's a chicken and egg situation, it's because the mass audience doesn't want it. The mass audience wants Short and Street or Seven Sharp or The Project and then they want to watch Married at First Sight or whatever else. And those shows weren't commercially viable. What does that say about the news media? Well, it says as much about the news media as it does about society at large, I think. But, you know, those are those are decisions that have been made for commercial reasons. And well, that's what will be interesting. That, that, but just going back to that other point, though, I think that that mattered a lot more 10 years ago than it does now. You know, I think when, when Campbell Live was taken off air, there was a genuine outcry from those members of the public who were really invested in it. But I genuinely think now there's, you know, maybe a less of a need for that really hard news show at 7 p.m., you know? People are exposed to much more news during the day that's than they used to true, be. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, I mean, respectfully, I, I think that's a bullshit answer. Um, yeah, <laughs> like, oh, wow. Uh, because I feel like news is, news is everywhere and all the time, but it's highly uh, managed and choreographed. And, and the the that sort of white-hot heat of a, of a big audience uh, and nowhere to hide and live and not sort of sort of kind of... Uh, frittering out out of the day, I think that that's different. And um, I love you. That's why I can I can say uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. it was a bullshit answer. 
because like, and then this is what, what ultimately we're leading to, and I think this is an interesting you know situation that that could potentially fall out of the um, the merger. You know, is a potentially a situation where you might have some product differentiation. Like right now, the product and and uh, Seven Sharp are matcher shows essentially, and. TVNZ still, like, it's going to have this monster lead-in audience. And even if it gives away some incremental, uh, you know, audience between 7 and 7.30, mm. it's still just going to be, by virtue of the scale of its legacy audience, it's still going to carry the night effectively. You know, have have you, is there any part of you that's like, well, is there some kind of middle ground even between Q&A and Seven Sharp that might come out of a, of a merged entity that could lead to, because I think there is a public good that comes out of uh, politicians and people around politics being held to account under the brightest of lights. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree that there is. The decisions that have been made so far are, are purely commercial decisions, clearly. And I suppose it depends on the nature of the merger. Like if If... And and what role commercial incentives actually end up playing, and what TV One or TVNZ One actually looks like. I mean, if there is an opportunity, if the bosses come to us and say, "Can you make a show like Q and A that's maybe slightly, you know, a, a little bit sexier, <laughs> um, a, li- a little bit sexier, but um, but you know, involves interviewing politicians most nights." I would love to do that, absolutely. Mm. But I can understand why at the moment, under the current settings and the current incentives, there isn't a space at 7 or 7.30 for that for that program. See, I, I, I would probably slightly disagree uh, on that there. I mean, if, if the bosses came to us and said, we want you to make Q&A five nights a week at, at 7 p.m., then the answer to that would be, cool, when do we start? But at the same time, I think what we've got going at the moment and coming back to that question of uh, of whether that would change the programming itself, at the moment, the way our funding operates is we're funded out of the Public Interest Journalism Fund mm. to make uh, public interest journalism. And, and I feel like that allows us the space to make things uh, differently to what we would have to do if we were, you know, entirely... Or even even more dependent on on commercial, you know, commercial revenue and on on paying our way with ads. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I well, think this is the nature of the merger, right? It depends what the it depends what absolutely ends we, up being we, our imperative. We still know yeah. very little about <laughs> what that's going to mean for you know. It, it is way above our pay grade at this stage, but you know, ultimately, I think the the position we're in at the moment is a really good position to be in. Uh, for that, for that reason of of you know who our funder is, they are the public. Therefore, therefore we are beholden to the public in terms of what we make. Mm. The one thing, yeah, I mean, I agree that you know obviously, uh, given who I am as a person, the 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 merger is a, is a wildly fascinating topic, much as <laughs> supply chains <laughs> yes. and uh, yes. the, the latest out of Rotterdam is to the general public. But um, the, the the thing that is interesting to me, right, is like ultimately we're all kind of weirdos hmm. and harking back to a 7pm era that for people probably our age and younger has, has largely passed uh, and yet there is, you know, like that probably is, and I'm just guessing here, an audience that we would consider incredibly important, perhaps the most important to impact with uh, with work like yours. 
you know, are there things that you've seen or things that you'd like to do with whether it's more resource or or, or say some kind of post merger magic wand that would allow for the kinds of things that Q and A does to exist primarily rather than secondarily within a digital domain and and reach out and touch those those audiences that maybe only kind of glancingly are aware of what you're doing? That's a very interesting question mm. and one for which I don't think <laughs> I'm particularly I'm particularly well placed to answer. Either. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, I mean our could we do I guess could we do more if we had more resources? I mean sure, yeah, but I mean I <laughs> I feel like we make quite good use of the resources that we already have well, and that that are that are quite generously Provided to the, us truth by the public, yeah. You know? But but if your question is how do we you know get younger audiences, for example, I mean yeah. I think the Q and A audience skews old, and how do we get younger audiences? Okay, we're going to reach them in digital platforms. At the moment, it's interesting to me how much parts of our interview, if we cut it up and put it online or put it on Twitter or whatever, how hard that those things can go. Right? Yeah, clearly, I, clearly I that's a way our, that people our, digest information. Our linear broadcast audience skews older. I yeah. don't know necessarily if um and I'm gonna I'm gonna crib from a term used about the spin-off audience, our our psychographic audience, as it were, you know, people who are sort of interested in the idea of Q and A and and what and what we produce. I don't know if that necessarily skews older in quite the same way. It's just a lot hard to measure. Yeah. Because linear TV measurement, the metrics around linear TV are very much set up uh, in a way that tells you exactly mm. who those people are, but then when you take the wider, you know, the wider Q and A extended universe, as it were, <laughs> uh, I don't know if it necessarily skews older in quite the same way. Yeah, it, it, we are a non-snackable show in a snackable world. <laughs> As well, you know, like people, you know what I mean? Like people, yeah, no, people. Very much. It's yeah. a 20 minute long interview. This is it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and it's yeah. like 20 minutes and, and, you know, and, and so, you know, and most people are digesting information and news and, and tiny little snippets. And so, um, I, I don't know how you go around making a digital format in which, see, a lot of people like you, like just, just, you know, will like listen to the show and just kind of have it on and, and, and tune in and out as they go about their day. Um, and I don't know how you breach that gap. It's almost like if we if we are to do a better job of reaching those audiences, aside from just clipping up interviews from our main linear product and putting on two minutes here and there, um, it's like how do we change the entire attention spans and the way that people digest information? And I don't know that <laughs> either Alex or I is equipped to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, no, I have nothing to add to that, actually. <laughs> no. Um, well, <laughs> I'm conscious that we have now breached our uh, our allotted time. Oh, but um, It's only Tuesday. We've uh, got plenty more days to think yeah. about what's coming this weekend. Okay, well, if I'm honest, I've got another fold this, uh, later on, <laughs> and I really need to prep, prep for that. But um, it's been so good having you up. And while I don't think you've quite sold for Q&A in, in the, the TikTok era, I still think what you've accomplished so far has been been pretty impressive. And, uh, yeah, excited to see how the local elections go. I mean, you, you won't be out there in a camper van, Alex. That, that breaks be. my heart somewhat. Don't you, know, you say am that. I, am I allowed to tell that story? Go on. Yeah. Okay, so end of last year, uh, we were... We were, you know, going to uh, interview Chris Luxon. We've talked about that. Um, and 
we got the opportunity to go and interview him at his house. And at the time, uh, it was one of our last shows of the year, so I was getting my van ready to drive it around over summer because the Auckland border was just about to come down. And what is your van? Uh, it's a 1991-ish Nissan Serena. It's a, it's a, it's a really fine vehicle. Uh, anyway, I needed to charge the battery up because obviously with the Auckland border in place, I hadn't been going anywhere in it. And so I said to Jack, can we, you know, when we drive out to this interview, can we take my van? <laughs> and he said, yes, but he made us park down the street. Well, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. Because like, we could, we drove past slowly and I could see Christopher Luxon like just kind of in his, like in a, in his window in the kitchen kind of preparing to have us there to host us. And he like looked out and I was like, keep driving, keep driving. You know, like a child being dropped at school who yeah. wants to be dropped 200 metres down the street. Yeah. And it was just... I uh, feel yeah. like a, a national politician who doesn't want to see the government largesse kind of <laughs> gone wild... Yeah. Would would really approve of a thirty-year-old yeah. vehicle, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, yeah. with, with accommodation built in, um, be, being the the one that the the journalists arrive in. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. the and the emissions of a small city probably. <laughs> <laughs> can I can I just say one other thing about the local elections and and the kind of stuff that we're doing generally Please. as well? This is what I live with. Um, <laughs> yeah. So one one of the things that I'm really excited about with the local elections is uh, getting Fenna Owen out and about. And we haven't actually mentioned her at all on this podcast, but she is uh, an incredible reporter that we've got on the show who yeah. uh, is uh, like is empathetic with absolutely everyone who she comes into contact with. And actually, last weekend she had this fascinating story about uh, about three waters and how mares in the Hawke's Bay aren't into it. And even though the, the genesis of the Three Waters reforms generally come from the Havelock North Gastro crisis, and the way that she's able to get out and about on the ground uh, with everyday people or with, you know, provincial leaders or with absolutely anyone really, I mean, I'm very, Her very excited. Her context book is just the, is the most interesting space. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and and I'm I'm really excited uh to see what uh what she's able to do with the local election and just, you know, with the rest of the year generally with that kind of coverage. But thank you for having us, Duncan. <laughs> no, no. Um it's it's been you a don't pleasure. Have any, any last words that you want to throw in as well? Alex is amazing, you know, it's just wonderful. No, we feel really <laughs> privileged. We do. We we feel very privileged to make our show and it's very kind of you to have us on. So thank yes. you. It's been lovely. Thank you. The Fold was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with Daylight. It was hosted by Duncan Greve, produced by T.I. Hair Butler, with production management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. Kia ora e tewi, T.I. Hair Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.